This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses a range of issues of significance around the world. Today's topic is governing technological innovation, U.S. and European approaches. The United States and European countries have frequently addressed issues governing technological innovation in divergent ways. For historical reasons more sensitive to privacy concerns, the Europeans have developed the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, and imposed it on all entities operating in the countries of the European Union. By comparison, the U.S. has been something of a legal Wild West for tech companies, although it it may be on the road to stronger regulation with the recent implementation of the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA. Still, the legal and regulatory environments have diverged sharply up till now. Will that change? So to comment on the policy, legal, and political aspects of regulating the tech sector in Europe and the U.S., we're fortunate to have with us today two analysts who pay close attention to these issues. First, let me introduce Aileen Chivot, who is Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Data Innovation, which is part of the larger Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. She has a mass Hi. She has a master's degree in political science and economics from Sciences Po, the prominent French graduate school of politics, and she joins us today from Brussels. Next is Francesco Ducci, who has a doctorate in competition policy from the University of Toronto, where he was also a junior fellow at Massey College. Last year, he was a postdoctoral global fellow at the NYU School of Law. During 2020-2021, that is to say the upcoming academic year, he'll be a Max Weber fellow at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, and we all envy him his year in Florence. He joins us today from Bologna. Thanks for joining us, Aileen and Francesco, for today's conversation on International Horizons. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks. Thank Thanks you, for being being here. So, Aileen, let me start with you. Um, perhaps you could start things off by explaining the EU's approach to governance of the tech sector. What is it about? 
Perhaps the biggest development that many of us in the U.S. would be aware of is the adoption of the GDPR that I've already mentioned, which gives individuals greater control over how their data can be used. What other regulations have been put in place or are being discussed? Uh, thank you, John. Well, this, uh, there's a lot to unpack uh, in there, uh, but it's a good opportunity to set the scene. So it's clear that especially since, you know, the new commission started um, a new mandate at the end of last year, the, um, the EU has been pushing for uh, for a certain approach, uh, as you mentioned, which, uh, you know, has been pushing for um, a, a certain objective, which is about gaining tech sovereignty and, and trying to be this uh, regulatory superpower uh, meaning that it would set standards based on the assumption that uh, the global market and, and foreign governance will, will follow. And some have called that the, this approach, the, uh, the Brussels effect, Anu Bradford of Columbia Law School uh, wrote a book about that. And others call it um, regulatory imperialism. And, you know, some say all of that has some sort of protectionist flavor. Uh, let's say that this is maybe Europe first. It could be some sort of equivalent to America first uh, in some some people's view. So that would be the approach. And just to briefly mention some of the reasons behind um, this newfound uh, assertiveness of Europe, the, the EU is really concerned with its growing dependence on foreign providers of critical uh, technologies and you know sluggish growth of its SMEs. Um, and the EU wants to have that capacity to invest in new uh, technologies such as uh, algorithms, uh, high-performance computing, chip technologies, data sharing. And the EU approach is also very much driven by this fear that big platforms prevent uh, SMEs from competing. The, in the EU, I guess that background sees that there's a race to technology and that it's it's lagging behind um, its U.S. and Chinese counterparts uh, in some areas. Uh, so it's it's really determined to win this next battle battle of data. It says as well, but at the the heart of what's driving the the tech sovereignty narrative is also a mistrust of foreign providers, um, which would not respect EU data protection rules, as you mentioned. Um, and so the EU thinks that it should push for policies such as data localizations and, and build, for instance, its own cloud solutions. And that's a problem because betting on the areas where you have little uh, incumbent strengths uh, while um, adopting more stringent or protectionist uh, rules will not be what will give the, the EU an edge in technology and it risks isolating it from, from its allies. And Europe has really a habit to rely on, on wish-driven strategies based on uh, the aspiration rather than capability and, and existing assets. Now, when it comes to, to just briefly mention as, as your question, uh, to your question about the regulations and policies that reflect that agenda. So data protection is a good example of, of Europe trying to extend its influence over uh, other countries and to adopt stringent rules regulating technologies now in the name of, of privacy, some sort of an unofficial religion. Um, and that attempt came about indeed with the GDPR, which the EU sees as a successful experience in that other countries have enacted uh, similar laws. Now, this agenda for tech sovereignty is clearly impacting how the EU has been driving other digital policies recently. You, you can see that stamp on 
the various proposals, um, so the data strategy, a regulatory framework for AI, the industrial strategy to groom uh, European champions, and then really mentions Europe's sovereignty is about, you know, Europe's needs to affirm its voice and, and uphold its values. And, and you can also see that with illegal online content and platform liability um, to, to regulate and monitor how platforms deal with their content. You can see that with conversation around digital tax, 5G uh, and trade. And you can see that with how the commission is modeling new tools for competition policy and antitrust uh, to tackle market dominance of big tech firms, especially um, American ones. So I think in a nutshell, that's, uh, that's what the EU's approach is about. And, and this is the policies around it uh, at the moment. We are very busy in Brussels, as you can see. Yes, so it seems. And that's a perfect segue, really, to the question that I wanted to ask, ask Francesco, uh, which has to do with uh, allegations of anti-competitive practices by the big tech firms. Um, the EU is currently gearing up, it seems, to go after Amazon's monopolistic position in a serious way. Uh, what would you say is driving these concerns about competition in digital sectors? Yeah, so thank you for, for your question. Um, when we look at big tech, we see industries that are characterized by very large economies of scale. There are also important network effects, and data is, has become a very important input. All these factors tend to give rise to very concentrated market structures. And as I explained in some recent work that I've been doing in this area, this, under certain circumstances, might give rise to even natural monopolies. So many of the anti-competitive concerns around big tech uh, are, in a way or another, the byproduct of these very concentrated market structures and the resulting size of some of the well-known platforms. So let me just give a few examples of these concerns. Um, is it okay for a large platform like Facebook to buy a startup or a small firm that might be just a complement at the time of the acquisition, but might, become, might, might have the potential to become a threat, a competitor in the future. An example that comes to mind, uh, um, it's the merger between Facebook and Instagram. Was Instagram just a small startup or was a threat to the Facebook position in the social media market? Another example of anti-competitive concern is what is known as uh, self-preferencing. Um, if you think about Amazon Marketplace, for example, it's a very large ecosystem where Amazon gives access to third-party vendors, but also competes with them on the same platforms. And it might have incentives to, to uh, favor its own specialized services that compete on the same platform with third parties. And this scenario covers not only the Amazon Marketplace, but earlier European investigations against Google. Google Shopping in particular, and more recently, new investigations against Apple and the App Store. Uh, the European concern is that when platforms have this dual role of platform provider and competitor in the same platform, this might distort competition, uh, what in legal terms is called abuse of dominance in Europe uh, and monopolization in the United States. Now, there are lively, active academic debates on these issues on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, but when we look at the enforcement record, uh, the EU has been far more aggressive than the United States, in particular regarding this issue of dominance and self-preferencing.
Um, how much does that have to do with differences in the understanding of uh, antitrust? So Tim Wu at Columbia Law School has written about this issue and, and basically argued that our antitrust posture is dated and, and inappropriate really to the world in which we live, that uh, it basically is a function of whether or not you're bringing lower prices to consumers. And as long as you are, you can't be seen as you know having a uh, an abusive, uh, whatever the European term is, abusive dominant kind of position. Uh, does that seem right to you? Uh, so this is a really hard question because the answer is not necessarily obvious. There are a lot of factors that might explain this divergence. For example, some people argue that Europe is motivated by protectionist uh, concerns or that the European legal regime uh, lacks economic rigor. I'm personally skeptical of both positions and I instead think that we have to look at the evolution of the two legal regimes, especially in the area of dominance, to really understand why there is higher willingness to investigate in Europe. What we know is that in the early stages, the European competition law regime was definitely concerned about bigness. It emphasized the special responsibility of big firms and contained legal presumptions that condemned conduct regardless of the economic impact on a market. And as a result, the European regime was often accused for valid reasons of protecting inefficient competitors rather than comp competition. Now, it's important to emphasize that this has changed in fundamental ways uh, in recent years. Starting from early 2000, the European regime has undergone a modernization process that today, very similarly to the U.S. approach, places economic analysis at the center of enforcement and tries to promote competition on the merit and consumer welfare. In a way, this is a story of convergence between the two regimes over the years. At the same time, I think there is still uh, significant differences that are embedded in the two legal regimes today, which at the core, I think, reflect different levels of faith in the robustness of market forces and their abilities to self-correct. I think this is really a key difference today because overall, the European legal regime follows economic theory exactly like the U.S., um, regime, but remains more skeptical overall about the ability of market forces to work well when left to themselves. And this is especially true in markets that are very concentrated, like in big tech. The EU also sees intervention to reduce entry barriers for new competitors, new entrants, as very important for in innovation incentives. And these factors overall um, explain why the EU is not really reluctant to intervene against dominant firms and to do so can rely on a legal regime that offer a fairly large basis in terms of legal doctrines to support enforcement. Now, when we turn to the US, the picture is very different. Uh, in theory, legal provisions are very broad and could cover uh, many of the issues. But in reality, the judicial interpretation of these provisions is much narrower. This for several reasons, but all, in a way or another, they all reflect a more dogmatic belief that markets tend to self-correct more naturally. And I want to point to some of the reasons why this um, starting point can result in a bias against enforcement in the U.S. First, I think many areas of intervention that are strong presumptions about efficiencies, various forms of conduct, uh, tend to be explained uh, on efficiency ground as opposed to anti-competitive uh, conduct based on uh, assumptions that were uh, developed among other schools by the Chicago School of Economics. 
Second, over the years, the burden of proof for plaintiffs to bring cases have become, has become much more demanding than in the past. And lastly, the provision uh, against monopolization um, which is enshrined um, in the Sherman Act, have been progressively narrowed and marginalized by court decisions, both in the scope of doctrines and in levels of enforcement. And this reflects a very strong concern that intervention will interfere negatively with the incentives of the incumbent to invest and innovate. And this is a, a significant difference from the starting point uh, of European competition law. Now, we are seeing some changes in the U.S. There is more interest in, in investigating uh, market power issues in big tech sectors. But I think these subtle in, in differences remain. And considering that are uh, particularly uh, prominent in markets that are structurally concentrated, I think they can explain a lot of what's going on today in these sectors. Interesting. Thank you. I I'm intrigued by... Oh, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to build uh, briefly on what Francesco mentioned about uh, um, barriers to market entry. Uh, it's in, in what I, I see in my work is uh, we see EU um, competition regulators believe that concentration reduces innovation, um, and they focus on when when you know when when analyzing competition, they focus on the size of companies and the number of competitors in a market, but when it comes to the digital and data-driven markets, that, that's the wrong approach because these markets tend toward um, concentration, not due to anti-competitive actions, but because they are characterized by um, network effects where you know, the, the value of firm services grows um, as they get larger. Uh, and so their concentration is usually pro-innovation and pro-benefits. This is how many platforms can offer free services, for example. Uh, so this is something that I, I, I wanted to I wanted to add to uh, what Francesco mentioned. And, and another little element of the conversation that's interesting to add here is how um, data is seen as a, um, conferring some market uh, advantage. Um, and that is, there is very much a discussion uh, in this respect. Um, it's data is a poor proxy for assessing for assessing um, online market power. It's you know many many companies can collect, share, and and, and use uh, the same data several times in different ways. You know, so online, uh, it's not like most goods. It's, it's non-rivalrous. Uh, it's widely available. It's cheap to collect. And it's not scarce in itself. What's what's really uh, difficult to find is is the expertise uh, and the innovative idea that makes the difference. I, I understand. Thank you. So uh, I wanted to kind of get back to th something that you know both of you have talked about in perhaps different ways, uh, but this notion of tech sovereignty is uh, perhaps the most obvious kind of example of what I'm curious about. And that has to do with the, you know, extent to which um, digital technologies, which had once been thought to, you know, unify the world, uh, will perhaps like other aspects of uh, economies uh, increasingly be, um, you know, national or regional in character. And uh, in other words, to what extent uh, will developments, not least related to the coronavirus crisis, um, you know, lead towards more 
kind of nationally oriented outlooks and and uh, or to what extent will you know cooperation be promoted i mean i heard a conversation with margarita vestager the other day uh the eu competitions are we might say um and it was you know noted that some people accuse her of being anti-american and you know the response was well basically it's just that the big tech giants are all american that's not it's not really you know any animus against the united states per se but i wonder how you see that playing out in the current context uh do you want to go ahead aileen uh yeah so it's an interesting question um the the U.S. government's approach generally, so again, perhaps to build on uh, what Francesco mentioned, uh, the, the U.S. approach may be more on encouraging innovation in AI, uh, you know, advocating the need to, to limit regulatory overreach uh, and, and, and recommending more light touch approach to tech regulations. Um, but, uh, you know, going for the innovation principle while, while Europe is going for the, the precautionary principle. Uh, however, by the way, side note before, before I go on, the U.S. kind of has now stricter regulation for facial recognition software than the EU. Um, uh, if you followed the latest developments with Facebook, uh, with um, sorry, Microsoft, IBM, uh, stopping uh, to sell facial recognition software. Um, but but so what's what's happening? And you mentioned the crisis. Um, I think nations and global economies are looking inward a little bit more than they did before, perhaps. Um, and the EU's approach in that respect does have an impact on transatlantic relations um, and the assertiveness of EU policymakers do impact, of course, the transatlantic relations. And if the EU is unilaterally setting rules going forward, then that might be a challenge. And, and on the other side, um, I think some fear that um, if Donald Trump is reelected, that the transatlantic relationship may not improve. And you can see recently how the U.S. administration is trying to push back on uh, EU proposals to regulate AI, um, sending a message that clearly we want more of a hands-off approach in the U.S. Uh, and you can see what's just happened with the digital tax. Uh, you know, a number of EU countries, and, and you mentioned Ms. Stagger, Executive VP, uh, said that you will not hesitate to to go forward with it. Um, and the U.S., that is not okay. And some people mentioned you could even have uh, that, that, that could even uh, fast track a uh, trade war last week. I've, I've heard and read those terms. Uh, and yet uh, the US and the EU can work together and they do and, and their economies are deeply connected. Um, and so they, they should con consolidate those, um, those ties. And if there are divergence of approaches in what we're talking about regulating tech, um, if there's this divergence, that would be problematic, especially if you want to solve complex global challenge like disinformation online. Um, you know, in, in Europe, we have a, a debate on the Digital Services Act, while the U.S. has a discussion on, on Section 230. That could lead to complications for companies and more fragmentation um, on the Internet. So this is a little bit um, to, to yeah, for, answer your question, um, but I could go on. Uh, maybe Francesco has something to, to add. Uh, sure. So uh, let, let me just say that um, the issue of uh, divergence between the two regimes, in, especially in tech, is not really necessarily new. 
uh, already back uh, when the Microsoft investigations uh, happened, there was a lot of debate about different approaches. And I think since then, the uh, collaboration, both in terms of academic research and among the enforcers, the institutions that enforce, have been uh, going up. Um, and in, in itself, is not really uh, a new story, although it become more pronounced. But I think the, the, the matter might change uh, to an extent when we shift toward simple antitrust inf- intervention, which is just intervening exposed in mar- most of the time exposed in markets to correct certain issues to uh, a more ex-ante regulatory framework. And this is where the European uh, Union seems to go. Uh, recently, um, there's, be, there's been um, a new proposal to uh, create a new tool which would complement uh, standard antitrust enforcement that basically gives the European Commission regulatory power ex ante to intervene in industries without um, anti-competitive uh, violation where there might be structural uh, problems. Now, when we move from exposed enforcement to ex-ante regulation, I think we enter in, in the realm of uh, regulatory standards across jurisdictions, whether this can uh, give rise to a race to the top, race to the bottom, uh, extra jurisdictional reach, even if it's just de facto reach out uh, of these regulations. And I think it's here where the... Um, collaboration and dialogue will become uh, more important, but also probably more uh, problematic. Interesting. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, this also leads into a broader question uh, that in some ways has divided uh, the United States and Europe, and that has to do with China's role in these uh, tech sectors, in these two settings. Um, a year ago, I mean, the United States was insisting that, and continues to insist that, um, you know, Huawei not be uh, allowed access to various kinds of data because they were not sufficiently distinct, really, essentially from the Chinese state, or so it was claimed. Europeans tended to see this in a different way. Um, More recently, there's been reporting to the effect that there's concern that uh, China is going to intervene in European markets uh, at a time when the tech sector is, you know, relatively weaker. How do you see uh, those developments and, and how do you see those divergences developing? Aileen? Yeah, um, so we talked about tech sovereignty for Europe and, and actually China uh, in particular has been a strong proponent of digital protectionism huh? uh, through uh, so-called beggar thy neighbor uh, mercantilist policies, something the EU, which is committed to, to free trade, should oppose. And China is, is not just playing catch up with, with the West. Uh, I mentioned the, the tech race that's happening at the global level. It's really planning to leap over Western economies and, and sees nothing less than, than global dominance in, in tech. They have this sophisticated um, AI strategy. Uh, they're allocating massive government funding to to capture global market share in AI, but also, also you know, um, sort of feeding their companies with, with money in general. And um, literally violating the rules um, of international trade, and um, they they want to be equal to other countries and, and develop breakthrough, and they want to become the world's top AI, for instance, innovation center. I've, I've worked um, uh, 
on, on AI a lot. So there's a lot of data points that are concerning. I mean, if you see them a couple of years back, China secured 48% of global investment uh, in AI startups when I think the US was about 10 less of 38%. So you can see the difference. There isn't much left for Europe in the, in the middle. Uh, but Europe is only beginning to realize that China's, you know, growing acquisition of EU firms and and investment in, in, in Europe's tech industry are a real threat to Europe's economy. Um, and then China is competing uh, fiercely and uh, unfairly. They're, they're stealing IP uh, from foreign firms. And the current crisis is, is bringing profound changes to geopolitical challenges, but also has uh, exposed um, the shortcomings of EU trade policy. In turn, that has given um, further impulse to the digital sovereignty or tech sovereignty narrative. And recently, you can see at all levels, uh, really, uh, policymakers in Europe have called for more robust and assertive responses or use of certain instruments to avoid over-reliance on China and protect its companies from you know, China's shopping tours, um, takeovers. Um, so with the impulse of the uh, US, uh, the EU is really waking up to, to, to these calls and, 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 and just trying to no longer be, uh, I mean, the, the, the crisis really is forcing it to confront this, this naive attitude, like Macron, the French president, Emmanuel Macron called it a year ago. Um, and so now still the EU is still focusing on EU sovereignty, um, increasingly so against China, but still uh, without including the US in, in this what could be a collaborative effort, really, like some sort of an allied nation sovereignty. Um, and, and you can see that in, in the industrial strategy of the US. Um, but really, it should align its strategies with in, in tech and in other areas with, with its allies to, to really provide, I think, um, a unified front to the challenges posed by, by China. And I mentioned a few to trade. And so I think there, there is a need for a stronger approach um, at multilateral level. Uh, and you could take the lead uh, or together with the US, uh, co yeah, collaborate further. Great, Francesco, I mean, the Chinese have bought a major port not too far from where you are speaking to us from, mm -hmm. name, namely in Trieste. Uh, so what, what do you think about this in the tech sector? Um, okay, so if, if we take a um, step back and we um, focus not only on the big tech, sort of the digital platforms that we know, and we look at technology and AI more generally, there is very strong global competition where China is definitely uh, one of the strongest players. Um, when it comes to uh, digital competition, um, there are certain questions that are becoming more and more pressing um, in the policy debate. For example, uh, there has been for the past months uh, proposals to break up some of the large uh, big tech firms, uh, but the uh, common response to these proposals is, well, what is that going to do for uh, competition with foreign competitors? So if we break up uh, Facebook, is that going to undermine Facebook competitiveness vis-a-vis uh, -vis other uh, competitors, in particular uh, China's competitors? So there is a lot of concern with regard to um, these issues. 
Um, there is also concerns that uh, relate to what is called state-owned enterprises, and this can play also a role in digital industries, insofar that um, creating a lev- um, level playing field might be uh, not easy, yeah, not immediate, if um, Chinese firms are uh, competing with the support of um, state funds, unlike other competitors. But I think overall, this goes back to um, the, the issue of regulatory standards. Once there are going to be regulatory standards from major jurisdictions, there will be um, some responses from other players that will give rise either to a race to the top and a race uh, to the bottom. And one question in this regard, for example, is concerns the, the United States. Uh, would the United States change the current attitude, a more uh, laissez-faire attitude more toward more intervention if there is a fear um, of um, increasing competition from uh, foreign uh, competitors. And I think ultimately this goes back to the question of what, to what extent there is uh, political and protectionist uh, ma- um, considerations in these debates. And I think the more um, rational way to go uh, around this question, which is a legitimate question, is to really take it agnostically and uh, try to evaluate uh, what are the possible political motivations that might uh, justify intervention or regulation, but this can go in either direction. This can political motivations can support either an overly aggressive enforcement attitude or or, or uh, the opposite, a uh, excessively weak um, enforcement uh, strategy. Right. Thank you. I mean, maybe I'll. I'd like to ask uh, one last question of each of you, um, and. It really has to do with, um, you know, what's happening in response to the coronavirus crisis. That is to say, you know, we're doing this uh, podcast discussion on uh, a platform that I had never heard of, you know, three months ago. Uh, Nobody, almost nobody had heard of Zoom three months ago. Uh, and you know, everybody's ordering everything online now instead of going shopping because they're afraid they're going to get sick. So there are certain kinds of tech platforms that have done enormously well and obviously consolidated their positions, uh, under the, you know, circumstances of the coronavirus. Uh, and I guess the question is, you know, do you worry about, the direction any of that is going. I mean, it's not true for all platforms. Uber's not doing particularly well, I wouldn't think. Uh, Uber Eats may be doing okay, but not Uber. Um, so, you know, do you worry about a kind of, you know, explosion of dominance by, say, Amazon, or is that not something we really need to worry about? Uh, Aileen? Well, um, it's certainly is true that um, our societies have relied um, on, on digital and uh, on platforms over the last few months and will continue to do so. And it's clear that here, if there was anyone saying digital is not important, this person is gone. I mean, this is, everyone is now clearly focusing on this as a priority. And I think that the new commission here is focused on, on two things, on, on green and on, on digital. Um, now, I, I understood from the, the, the policy debate happening in Europe that, uh, you know, the, the policymakers have welcomed the um, collaborative approach that they've been uh, sort of open communication 
with platforms, with with Facebook, with um, you know um, uh, Twitter, uh, everything that's happened. I, I think there has been some more communication. Uh, platforms have made efforts; they had to uh, in the face of COVID. You know, Google banned uh, ads capitalizing on the pandemic. Uh, Facebook removed. Uh, uh, false claims about treatments in its posts. Um, Amazon banned thousands of, of seller accounts, you know, who, um, for, for, for price, uh, price gouging. Uh, so I think there's been some really good and encouraging example that policies and, and tech platform can, can work hand in hand and that you don't necessarily need to have a hard hard rules and, 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 and that some, something like what we call a co-regulatory framework can give the, the flexibility and gave platforms the flexibility to to respond with exceptional measures during during this crisis. Um, so, yeah, I think you know we we, we also see, if I may add, um, how this tech sovereignty has played out uh, as some countries have resisted collaboration with platforms in the name of tech sovereignty and we don't want to work with you because you are American platforms that will violate privacy. So uh, during the crisis, you saw how you and member states, they've tried to, to develop contact tracing applications with the idea that, you know, tech firms shouldn't be the ones providing the systems that these apps will be based on. Yet, uh, interestingly and, and ironically, EU uh, countries ended up using, you know, the system provided by Google and Apple. Uh, France did not. Uh, its system is not likely to be easily interoperable with all the other European countries' apps. It also has less privacy protection than the API that Google and Apple have built because it's um, centralized in France. And it's really like the uptake is extremely low in France. Uh, so, and if France actually had to ask Apple and Google to relax their privacy uh, policies to be able to build something with it. So, you know, we can, we can see how the, the sort of go it alone um, uh, approach also works between EU countries and how it doesn't lead to anything efficient. So I think the way forward really is to try to work together. You know, tech companies, yes, they may be mostly Americans, but guess what? They still are the best equipped to deliver in many areas, like in cloud uh, and, and, and with respect to the applications, I mean, for AI. We have other areas where we can bring uh, assets and, and engage with mutual benefit. Uh, so, yeah, that would be uh, my response. But we don't need another version of Minitel. No, thanks. No, please. Right. <laughs> no need. Right, right. right. Francesco. Um, yeah, so I think what is really key is um, contestability. It's, it's a concept that is really important in, in this uh, digital sphere. Because when we look at a very competitive market, there is a lot of competitors that compete um, on price, uh, among other things. And we can look at these issues from a static perspective. Here in the digital sphere, competition is really on a dynamic dimension. And really the, the driving source of competitiveness is to the extent to which new entrants or current uh, competitors can threaten to, and contest an established position. So in a way, our reliance on um, some of these uh, digital services, uh, especially um, announced by the recent developments in the world, um, perhaps can be a 
source of competition in the sense that there is more uh, niche segments where new platforms uh, can emerge. And I think from a policy perspective, what is really important is that we want to make sure that um, the contestability element that I was mentioning at the beginning remains uh, strong, that incumbents do not um, reduce this uh, threats and make sure that we remain in a way in the scenario that was already envisioned um, by Joseph Schumpeter, Schumpeter um, the political economist, um, that I think we really see something like that uh, today. And we need to make sure that uh, these markets, regardless of how uh, concentrated uh, they are, they remain to an extent uh, contestable. So in a way, the recent coronavirus crisis, um, I think, showed a lot of the benefits that we receive from digital platforms, sort of the positive side. But I think overall, um, I underscore how reliant we are on the services. And I would predict that there will be um, stronger push to have clear, perhaps stronger rules. But Thank you, you very much. I'm uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, go ahead. Go no, ahead. Did you want to add something? Yeah, I think you, you have to admit that it's it's interesting to see how companies like IBM or Microsoft are responding to events happening now with with you know strong measures. Um, I just find it an interesting development, uh, like I mentioned, for, for facial recognition technology. I mean, there is some right. element of self-regulation here that that has worked. Right. These are obviously important developments that are uh, arising from, you know, what's been going on in the streets of the United States and to some extent uh, of the rest of the world. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, unlike Francesco, I don't think we can speak really of the recent coronavirus crisis uh, as if, unfortunately, it were over. I mean, that mm -hmm. may be the way it feels in Europe at the moment, but uh, obviously it's not the way it feels in the United States right now. But in any case, thank you very much. Uh, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Aileen Chivot of the Center for Data Innovation in Brussels and Francesco Ducci of the European University Institute in Florence for sharing their insights about regulating the tech sector in the U.S. and Europe. I also want to thank Meryl Sovner of the EU Studies Center at the Ralph Bunch Institute uh, for helping to bring this group together, and Christo Voinov for helping on the technological side. This is John Torpy of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the CUNY Graduate Center saying, see you next time on International Horizons. Thanks.